0: Well, good morning, Westview. Um Welcome, welcome this morning to, um, to our church service. Uh, to those online, equally welcome. Glad to have you with us. Praying that the Lord will speak to our hearts this morning in a, in a powerful way to inspire us, encourage us um, to, to walk with him and have a powerful encounter day in and day out. Um, before I continue... I just want to introduce myself. My name is Evange DesTunis. I'm part of the preaching team here at WesU. But before we get into the passage, I have an announcement to make. I'd like to introduce to you Anastasia Mary DesTunis, Born January 25th of this year. Beloved third daughter to my son, Michael, and Caitlin, my mother-in-law, my daughter-in-law. Wow, that came off wrong, eh? <clears throat> Mary is my mother-in-law as well, so hence the confusion. Um, she is also the younger sister of Abigail Lynn and Mercy Claire that you see there. and you don't want me to start with my grandkids. I can give you their birth dates, but I could be here all day. so for Claire and me, this is our our ninth grandchild our fourth granddaughter and sometimes you wonder is there room in your heart to love another child and another child and another child and the answer is emphatically yes yes amen so Lord's blessings to you Michael Caitlin your beautiful family and may God's hand be upon you as you raise uh, your children uh, in the love and fear of the Lord Let's turn the corner now and get into what we have, or what I pray the Lord has in store for us this morning. As you know, we're currently in a series titled Experiencing God, a series on the Holy Spirit. This is all about encountering and experiencing the Holy Spirit in our lives, and I'm going to broaden the theme this morning and talk about how we can experience the triune God, what that means and how it plays out in our very lives. Uh, in our everyday lives. But first, what I'd like to start talking about is walking. Walking. Walking is a basic function. Uh, Human beings, before planes, trains, and automobiles, human beings walked. Not everybody in the old days could afford a camel or a horse or a donkey, but they certainly could walk. And it's one of the basic functions of being a human being. From babies, from the first year of life until our dying days, human beings have walked and walking is such an integral part of the human life that in ancient times distances were not measured in miles or kilometers or even cubits to borrow a measurement of antiquity rather distances were measured in time how long does it take or how far is jericho from here well it's a five-day journey how far is it to Rome? Well, that's a, you better pack some stuff because it's going to be a 12-day journey. And the distances were measured in time. How do we measure a journey when we look at a 5-day journey or a 12-day journey? Well, the journey is the distance that you would cover if you walked in a day. Now, to engage in a five-day journey, 12-day journey, or a 20-day journey, there are certain elements that are required. You would have to have adequate equipping and a preparation for the journey. Uh, you'd need to be intentionally walking in a certain direction. There are some tools or instruments that you would need to navigate, help you navigate your journey so you're not led astray, go off course. You need food and and clothing to brave the elements that you would encounter, and, of course, some protective gear in case you encountered any dangers or threats along the way. And this is why I believe that walking is such a beautiful metaphor for life. We get phrases or idioms like, I'd walk a mile in someone's shoes, or walking tall, or she walked out on me, or... Walk the talk, or my favorite, people came from all walks of life. And this has a very powerful way of conveying the message of a metaphor for life. Life has ups and downs and highs and lows. You encounter obstacles. There is a changing of the environment. You could be walking with someone and engage in conversations along the way. There, you could be dragging your feet or there could be a spring in your step. And if you live long enough, just as if you walk long enough, there is potential wisdom to be gained. Now, which brings us to our passage of our day. Because if we encounter different landscapes and walk with different people and encounter different situations along the way, they serve to teach us how best to walk or to translate the metaphor, how best to live. So, how does walking well paint the picture of what it looks like to live well? Or if we're going to transition into the passage that we'll be looking on, how does walking well com- convey the message of walking with the triune God in a way that allows us to experience him more fully, more intimately? And why would this be so important for us as a church? Well, our mission statement is we are a community pursuing the restoration of all people and all things through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. We are engaged in a relationship. We are walking with him, whatever that means. But in this living relationship, we engage in a walk, a walk of life, a walk to life. And that's why I've titled my message this morning, walks of life, and the walk to life. Our passage for this morning is Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like you to turn to it in your Bibles or any devices that you might have. We're looking at the latter half, verses 17 to 32. But before we get into the passage, some background. I find it interesting that using walking as a metaphor for life, because just last week, Charlie spoke on Galatians chapter 5, and he titled it, The Secret to Walking by the Spirit. And in fact, this passage was supposed to follow up Adrian's passage when he had preached on the first half of Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. And I'm not going to unpack that passage. I invite you, if you haven't heard that message, to, uh, to go look it up on the link at, uh, on YouTube or our, our Westview uh, website, uh, a very, very powerful message. But just for the, uh, the interests of our passage for this morning, Uh, I'm just going to talk about something that begins chapter 4, and that is verse 1. And verse 1 sets the tone, sets the pace for what Paul is going to be dealing with, particularly when we look at this passage, verses 17 to 32. Verse 1 starts off with, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So Paul is saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The word worthy in the Greek is axios. We get our word axiom or axiomatic from it. And what is an axiom? An axiom is a statement or principle that is generally accepted to be true. Something that is axiomatic is, is self-evident. It's unquestionable. So what's Paul saying here is, in light of what I've said, chapters 1 to 3, this walk makes sense. This walk, unquestionable, self-evident. It passes the smell test. And what did he say in verses 1 to 3 to summarize? In, on the cross, Jesus tore down the partition between Jew and Gentile, and in fact, between all human beings that were divided from then till now. And having broken that division, he has created one new humanity, One humanity that is united, that is one, and is called to reflect the oneness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in light of that truth, he says, this is the walk that we are to walk into. This is the worthy walk. This is going to be self-evident, unquestionable, axiomatic that we are one, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And he goes on to unpack that in verses 1 to 16. But now Paul is going to turn the corner and with boots on the ground, so to speak, he's gonna look at what a worthy walk ought to look like. But before he gets into that, he says what a worthy walk should not look like. So I invite you to turn to chapter four, starting from verse 17. Excuse me. So it starts off by saying, So I say this, and affirm in the Lord that you are to no longer walk, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves up to indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former way of life, you are to rid yourselves of the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth." Therefore, ridding yourselves of falsehood, speak truth, each one, of, each one of you with his neighbor, because we are parts of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But if there is any good word for edification, according to the need of the moment, say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. A lot there. There's a richness to this passage. I will just briefly give an overview of what he is saying to structure this passage, and then we move on. What I feel the Lord wants us to hear this morning. First off, he talks about the unworthy walk. And what is the unworthy walk generated from? Basically, he puts it right out there from the get go, verses 17 and 18. And he talks about the mind, and he talks about the heart. See, in verse 17, it says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. In Greek, mateotis tunos, of the mind. It's literally vanity of the mind. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. In Greek, it's literally porosis, And porosis, we get our word osteoporosis from it, a a hardening of the bones. Now, just a little short aside, because I I find this fascinating. Many of you know that I'm a dentist. And bone is a living tissue. Most of us see bone outside a a body, and it seems like it's dead and brittle and hard. But in fact, it is a living tissue. So much so that I've, I've said this many, many times. When I extract teeth, in an office, you could cover the patient so I can't really identify the patient or tell their age, but just by extracting a a tooth, just feeling the give on the bone, I can tell the age of the patient. Like extracting a baby tooth, it's so malleable, the bone, it comes out in an instant. Extracting a tooth on an elderly person, there's no give. It's hard, it's brittle, and many times, either the tooth will fracture or the bone will crack in taking out a tooth. So that's why, any wonder osteoporosis sets in in the elderly and a little fall and they break their hips because their, their bones have become so hard. It's almost like they're, they're, they're dead. They're not living anymore. And this is the term that he uses to describe the heart of the Gentiles who walk in an unworthy manner. Their hearts are hard. There's an osteoporosis of the heart, if you will. And they become callous. Literally in the Greek, it means unfeeling. You you rub it, you hit it, and there's no sensation, there's no response, there's no feeling to it. And because of that, because of their darkened mind, their futile, their mind engaged in vanity, and their hardened heart, they walk this way. Then he goes on in verses 22 to 24 to liken walking in a worthy manner versus walking in an unworthy manner by having a set of clothing, Old clothing that you take off and new clothing that you put on. He says, put off the old self and put on the new self. And then he gives these on-the-ground qualities that describe and contrast the old self to the new. In verses 25 to 32, he says, putting off falsehood, speak the truth. Don't have long-lasting anger, but have short-lived anger. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Make your anger short-lived, not long-lasting. Instead of stealing, labor. And give an opportunity to bless others with the fruit of your labor. Instead of an unwholesome word, speak a good word. Instead of grieving the Holy Spirit, realize you're sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. In Greek, it's literally apolitrosis, which is freedom, liberty. The day of liberty, the day of freedom, you're sealed by the Spirit. And instead of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, be kind, compassionate, forgiving. I've intentionally left out the most important word in this passage, which is actually the hinge word upon which everything else turns. And that word is the first word of verse 20. It's the word, but... But, don't walk this way, this is what characterizes people who are walking this way, but, he says, you did not learn Christ this way. And I want us to talk about what it means to learn Christ. How do we engage on this journey of learning Christ? But before we talk about what learning Christ entails... <clears throat> perhaps there are some things that we need to unlearn about our, our knowledge of Christ or, our, or what we sense or believe God is like or Christ is like so that then we can truly experience God. A lot of what I'm sharing now comes from this, this book that I've read that has really had a profound impact on my life. It's called, and I've shared this before, Having the Mind of Christ, Eight Axioms to Cultivate a Robust Faith. And it's by the authors Ben and, Sternke and uh, Matt Tebby. I strongly encourage you to read this book. It is, it is phenomenal. So how do we experience God? Again, back to our mission statement. We are a community pursuing the restoration of all people and all things through a living relationship, a living relationship. It's a journey. It evolves. It grows over time with Jesus Christ. And it's surprising to see how often our deep gut level understanding to how God is like is so different from the way Jesus reveals him. Now, I'm not asking you to take a theology test and answer these questions, because in our minds, very often, we know what Jesus is like, what God is like. But in our subconscious we perhaps have an understanding of God or an experience of God that really is not in sync or in line with the way Jesus reveals God. And how do we come to these misconceptions or misunderstandings of God? Well, very often we automatically gather these assumptions of who God is from our experiences with our parents, with teachers, with friends, with authority figures... And then we project these experiences onto God. And this all takes place in the, in the realm of the subconscious. We're not f- perhaps aware of it in our minds, but deep down in our bones, in our, in, our, in our guts, we have the sense this is what God is like. And I'm just gonna give three examples of how we understand God to be like. And tell me if any of these resonate with you. The first one is the distant deity, the distant deity. This is the God who really isn't interested in us, who's really busy up in heaven with his stuff, and it's like we almost have to clamor to get his attention for something. We feel that we have to pray these elaborate prayers. We have to worship with more passion and vigor. Uh, We have to bargain and make deals with God to get his attention so that he would hear us and listen to us, and try to convince them to show up or do something in our lives. August of 2021, my brother-in-law, Claire's brother, Steve, was diagnosed with cancer. And very shortly thereafter, we had uh, realized that it, we came with the news that it had metastasized very quickly. We prayed and prayed, and a lot of people prayed, prayed, prayed for him, that God would spare him, that God would heal him. Unfortunately, August of 2022, he passed away. You want to ask the question, where was God? Was he distant? Was he too busy to listen to us? Was he not there? Did he not respond? Does this resonate with you, perhaps? Have you had an experience, an encounter in your life, where you cried out to God fervently, no response? At least not the response you were praying for or hoping for. That's that's one aspect. Let's look at another one. The second misconception or misunderstanding about God. And this one is the demanding judge. The demanding judge. This is the God who's going to get you for that. This is the God who is quick to notice when we've been bad, when we've done wrong, when we've fallen into sin. It's almost like we commit sin, whether knowingly or unknowingly, and we hear the voice from behind us. I'm going to get you for that. I saw that. I'm going to get you for that. The punishment, the suffering you're experiencing now, it's because of that sin you committed. And we beat ourselves up, and we come to God and say, yes, we fall short, we're, we're always sinning, and if if we feel like, if we confess to God that we're sin and we know how bad we are, perhaps he won't come down as hard on us and punish us. You ever get that sense? That you fall into sin and you're looking over your shoulder seeing a God who can't tolerate sin, who has nothing to do with sin and, and is 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 enraged by it and comes down hard on you? The third and final one I want to talk about, and there's many, many more, but I just want to give a few examples of how we misconceive or misunderstand God is this is the deterministic micromanager. This is the God who's in control of everything and wants me to be in control of everything. This is the God who is a control freak, a helicopter parent. He meticulously controls everything in the universe. There is no molecule in the universe that is out of place. He controls it all. And he wants his children to follow this observance of a set of rules. It's about rules and regulations. It's about do's and don'ts. And you have to toe the line and follow his will perfectly because he's 100% in charge. And very often we come to churches that uh, engage in this control as well, so much so that we find leadership at times is very controlling and manipulative and wants their followers to do the same with others as well. That there's no freedom in God, that he controls every single aspect and we are in constant pursuit of trying to find, is this his will or is this his will? Is this what he wants for me to do or is that what he wants me to do? ever have that kind of encounter with God or sensed that God is like that? He's controlling everything about me? So what does it mean to learn Christ afresh, to engage, to walk with Christ in a way that reveals God in the way that Jesus reveals him? Before we get into this, I'd like to pause for a minute. If any of these resonate with you, if you could just take a moment and I'll close this off at the end. Just take a moment to pray to God. Allow the subconscious, perhaps understanding of who God is and what he is like to come to the surface. Lay it bare before him and say, God, I invite you, reveal yourself to my mind and my heart that I would know you the way you truly are and that I would walk with you in a worthy manner. So let's just take a minute or two pray. Is it the demanding judge? Is it the distant deity? Is it the controlling micromanager, or is it something else, perhaps, that is not bears that does not bear witness to the way Jesus reveals God? And let's just pray. Father in heaven, we come before you as your children, your beloved children. We ask, Father, that as we engage with you, as we connect with you, as we walk with you, that you would reveal yourself in your true self and that our hearts would be transformed, our minds would be renewed to understand who you are. And as we walk with you, that you would rub off on us, that we would walk in a way that is worthy and that you would be pleased with us and others would be blessed by us. Speak to us this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is God really like? The emphatic, wonderful message of the New Testament is God is like Jesus. Jesus is revealing God. Period. Full stop. Now Let's unpack that. Hebrews 1.3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 2.9 says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In John 14, Jesus was engaged in a conversation with his disciples. And he says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. And in John The beginning of John, the Apostle John says, No one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Has made him known. It's literally in the Greek, he exegetes God for us. That's literally what he says. So is he a distant deity? Just a few verses up from there, in verse 14 of John 1, it says, The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world can't accept Him, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. No, I am not distant. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 20, what does it say? Go make disciples of all nations. And how does he end it? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What about demanding judge? In Colossians, Paul says in 3.3, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. His posture is always of blessing, of benevolence. Jesus came to save us from our fear and guilt and shame. Why would he use those very things as motivators for obedience and holiness? The question is, how do you experience God in your badness? Do you experience God saying, I'm going to get you for this? Do you feel like he's dangling you over the fires of hell? You're suffering because of that sin? Or do you have the sense that God is on the porch looking down the road, seeking for that sinner that perhaps might come down the path? And when he spots you, he picks up his robe and runs to you to embrace you, to receive you to himself. One of those is the depiction that Jesus used to portray the father in the parable of the prodigal son. The other one is not. The prodigal son, he was a heavy-duty sinner, wasn't he? And yet, what was the posture of his father to him? Welcoming him, receiving him, taking him back to himself. What about the deterministic micromanager, this controlling helicopter parent? Is that how we see Jesus portray God? Many ways, people chose not to follow him or do things that he would want them to do, and yet he would give them the freedom. At the Passover meal... The Last Supper, remember? He turns to Judas and he says, what you do, do quickly. And he released him. He let him do what he desired to do. To the rich young ruler, he was so sad, but he let him go. He let him walk away. When he came on Palm Sunday and looked over Jerusalem and and cried and wept over Jerusalem, he says, how quickly I would receive you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not And there was a, was a freedom to the agency of the human being. God allows us to choose to do, even if it is distancing ourselves from God. He allows us that freedom. You see, God doesn't want mindless robots to control. He wants mindful disciples to empower. I like the the quote of Dallas Willard, where he says, it is God's intention that we should grow into the kind of person he could empower to do what we want to do. Now, back to learning Christ. Because the reality is, I just uh, read a bunch of scripture verses to you, and the reality is that it won't necessarily change my subconscious assumptions about God they could I could accept them acknowledge them in my mind but how can it trickle down into my heart what do we mean by learning Christ being an apprentice of Christ being a follower of Christ actually being a disciple of Christ because learning in the Greek is emathete to Christo which is the root word for "matitis," disciple in the Greek. So it's the same word. How are you discipled in Christ? How do you learn Christ? Not simply the doctrine of Christ, but Christ himself. How do you get into such an intimate relationship with him that you apply this intimate knowledge of who he is so much so that it impacts your walk to the extent that you no longer walk like the Gentiles walk? How does this happen? back to the heart and the mind, because that's where it starts. The fruit of that, we saw, don't be like this, be like this. But it's not about a moral code. It's not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation and mind renewal. But how does that happen? How do we go from a darkened, vanity-driven mind and an osteoporosis-stricken, brittle, stone-cold, unfeeling heart? In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How is the heart so gripped? that it's transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And then, how is the mind renewed? Well, you know, the, in the original Greek, in the New Testament, there were no punctuations. There were no chapters. Chapters came centuries later. There were no periods, paragraph breaks. It was all strung, capitalized letters strung together. So let's see how this passage continues beyond 432, and look at the first two verses of chapter five. It says in Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitators, mimite to theo. Mimite, we get our word mimic. Mimic God is what he's literally saying. As beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So what is he saying here? Mimic God as beloved children, you are beloved of God, and walk in love. You want one phrase to describe what a worthy walk looks like? He whittles 417 to 32 into one phrase. Walk in love. That's what he says. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. How is our heart gripped? The cross is the center point revelation of Jesus about God. God most perfectly is revealed in Jesus, and Jesus most fully and completely reveals God on the cross. You want to see what God is like? Behold him on the cross, humiliated, out of love, emptying himself, giving of himself for you and for me. And as we treat him harshly, he utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the revelation of who God in Jesus is like. I'll use the very words that uh, the authors use in having the mind of Christ. The love displayed by Jesus on the cross was not merely a temporary situation necessary to bring about the salvation of the world, but rather is the deepest, truest, and most eternal revelation of who God has always been and will always be. Self-emptying, empowering love The New Testament affirms that the cross of Jesus is not just one revelation of God among many, but the final, definitive revelation of God. After the cross, all other understandings of God are henceforth rendered either incomplete or obsolete or worse, idolatrous. God's love looks like the cross of Christ and is emptied of privilege a power that presumes, and coercion. It doesn't insist on having its own way. It is a fierce, tenacious, rugged love that is categorically unlike our worldly conceptions of what love is and what love does. It certainly is possible to use the Bible to construct a picture of God who is distant or demanding or controlling, but the New Testament witness is clear. Jesus is what God is like. We must let Jesus' actual life revealed in the Gospels illustrate who God is and interpret other difficult or conflicting passages through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is how Jesus becomes the lens through which every other picture of God is understood. To say that God is like Jesus is not to say everything there is to say about God, but it's the structure, the framework on which everything else must be built, the lens through which our imagination must come to know God. This becomes the orienting center of our God-talk and God-sense, and we integrate and interpret from this center. But as true as all this is how can this story impact our lives today so that we are transformed and renewed by the spirit back to our mission statement only this time i'm going to phrase another i'm going to uh, emphasize another phrase in the mission statement it says we are a community We're not individuals. We are a community pursuing the restoration of all people and all things through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes place in the context of community. So how do we unravel our misconceptions about God? We read the stories of Scripture, and we see the Savior come alive in his people. And as they relate to us, as we relate to one another, we understand and we come to know what God is like through the people that he has brought in relationship with us. Because we are a community. We are one. We are united like the triune God is united. And when I sense that God is distant, I have his people, my sisters and brothers, come around me, put an arm around me, love me, walk with me in my time of pain and difficulty and suffering. To the demanding judge, when I confess my sins and I cringe thinking I'm going to be judged, I have my sisters and brothers come around me and receive me and accept me and walk with me that I would overcome not succumb to to sin, but overcome and be victorious, that they would rejoice with me in that. And to the controlling micromanager, we are freed and empowered to live this life of liberty and freedom, to actually walk with God in a way that he becomes the new self that is put on us. But that's the community that we are in here, in this church what about the community out there? The community that lives with secularism, oblivious to any spiritual, supernatural reality. How do we be, make Christ known to the surrounding community? You see, the Bible, it might contain the living words and the stories of the life of Jesus. But for many outsiders, the Bible is a closed book. There's no no power in their eyes of the Word of God. So how do we impact the people around us? The reality is, for many of the people outside the church walls, you and you and you and me, we are the only Jesus they'll ever see. As we are in relationship with people around us who are not walking with God, who are perhaps engaged in unworthy walks, didn't Jesus do that? He was, a, he was seen as a friend of sinners, and we are called to mimic him, come alongside others so that they would see Jesus in us. And finally, I come to the last verse, and we'll close with this. In verse 2 of chapter 5, once he says, "...therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us." It says, "...an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma." This is the question that I leave with you and with me. This is a challenge for me equally as well. You enter a room full of people. People are milling around, you interact with a few, and then you leave. What's the aroma that wafts through the air as you leave? As I leave. Is it a fragrant aroma? Is, do people say, wow, wish more people were like him or her? Or is it, wow, I'm glad that person's gone. Wow, I'm glad they're out of this room already. I think the challenge for us, if we are called and invited to walk in love, to mimic Christ, we are called to enter into other people's lives and leave a fragrant aroma like our Lord Jesus did. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for Jesus who lived among us, who walked among us, and who invites us as he receives us and calls us, his beloved children, to walk in truth, to walk in love, and to leave this fragrant aroma as he invites us, as he did, to empty ourselves, to sacrifice of ourselves, to give of ourselves with this agape love a love that blesses others, that gives to others, that is life-giving and our Lord Jesus Christ exalting. It is in his powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks, Savage. Amen. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, we do have time for a question or two. Now the time to go and, uh, and gather your children moms and dads uh, was there anything in the room that you're hoping to get a clarification or or, or a, a thought came to mind otherwise uh in the text line is open perhaps everything was clear and there was no is that carlos over there yep Well, just a comment. Thank you again, Ivan. Um, you know, a few months ago, I heard a, a Dutch man
0: uh, giving his testimony. And um, he was talking about his wife. And he said, when I learn my wife. I said, what, what is he saying? When I learn my wife. And, you know, what I thought is probably he was translating in his mind
1: from the Dutch learning to know when I knew my wife. So anyway, thank you so much for um, giving us that
0: light into it. Uh, Thank you, Carlos, appreciate it. Thanks.
1: Well, um, if there's nothing else, we're gonna transition to communion. Message I got, Vander, just beautiful word. Thank you for a well-structured, simple yet life-changing encouragement. And I agree. And like, I love how just this passage had these different, you know, ways to live and different things to avoid. And I love that what you focused on was letting us be clear about the true character of God, because that's where it all flows from. Um, when we view God as not really who he is, that's what brings forth living that is not as it should be. But it's when we see the cross and when we know that we are loved, um, just as you read, um, just as Christ loved you, love others. When we can understand that we have a God, a Father who loves us, even as we often do fail him, um, that is what sets us free in our hearts to to live out the, the commands that we see in Ephesians. So it's just a great reminder. Thank you, Evange.